Welcome to the Beehive Capital Show. I'm Douglas Abusu. As always, I'm here with the Beehive Capital Management Team. On the Beehive Capital Show, we provide a medium for the startup ecosystem's most respected and trusted leaders to share their insight so entrepreneurs and investors can flourish, even during these trying times. Eugene Bamba joins us today. He is a partner at PwC, focus area being the technology sector. Prior to PwC, Eugene was CFO of a company named ThoughtWire, an enterprise software solution focused on digital twin technology. Eugene, welcome to the Beehive Capital Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I did give a brief intro on your background. Could you briefly explain your role as partner of the technology sector at PwC? So the role has been a unique one relative to what people would expect out of a professional services firm. So I don't specifically do audit or tax or deal-based work. I have a dual role where I'm present in the market and I'm offering operational scale advisory type services to early stage and later stage technology companies. Just given my background as a CFO in the past and, and having that operational experience, I'm able to do a little bit more to help companies through that journey that uh, they wouldn't otherwise potentially see from uh, a professional services firm, just given my operational experience. Great, great. And with that said, what are the type of services that you do provide that are not typically seen within most firms? So I would say that um, helping on the, sometimes it's on the fundraising side where you see a lot of professional services firms come in, it's, it's on larger rounds where you would expect to see like a large corporate finance function in it. Um, but the earlier stage, small stuff where it's working on getting yourself positioned for the round, uh, what does the, the model kind of look like and, and how does it feel? How are you positioning the company in the pitch? What metrics are you tracking? How are you positioning yourself for growth? How are you positioning yourself for scale? It's that area. So I would say like we spend a lot more time in seed and series A from that point of view, just before people have like a real experienced CFO at the table where, you know, I can either help mentor a VP finance, a director of finance, if there is one, or if they're looking for the full back office, we also have a cloud finance team at PwC that assists on the online bookkeeping business. So you'll get that bookkeeping business and then me attached to the account team as well, who's providing the operational insight and support as you grow. Awesome. Now, speaking of the financing and the advice from the early stages of a company's progress, this does tie into your history of large financing rounds, mergers, and consulting ventures. With that said, could you give an explanation as to what you were doing prior to PwC? My career has been a little unique that this is my third stint at PwC. So I've gone back and forth between being an operator, CFO operator at a couple of startups and being a PwC. So the last company I was at was a company called ThoughtWire, which was a uh, an enterprise software solution focused on digital twin technology, integrating and orchestrating to systems, devices, and things to give you like a real-time contextual layer of what's going on. 
And before that, again, at PwC, and then before that stint, uh, I was at a company called Medical Telecom, which then became a public company later called Health Screen Solutions. Now, with Medical Telecom and Health Screen Solutions, that was essentially a merger that took place, correct? Yeah. So I went in there. I was, I think, employee number 22 or 23 at, at Medical Telecom. Uh, but the first real finance person that they had brought onto the company at that time. And as soon as I joined the reverse takeover, well, it wasn't a reverse takeover, it was a merger. Uh, but the merger was starting to take place between Health Screen Solutions and Medical Telecom. And, you know, aside from being in, in way over my head at that point, because it automatically became your CFO of a public company. And it was my first operating stint outside of, uh, you know, a few years in audit at an accounting firm and a year in uh, in the deals practice. So, you know, picking up a new company and trying to do the integration into that and, and figuring out the reporting framework and understanding the growth story and investor relations, there was a lot of pieces and a lot of moving parts to that. But the way it ended up working was uh, Medical Telecom basically was doing the subscription model for patients to their family physicians. So it's really common today. But back in 2007 timeframe, 2006, 2007 timeframe, this idea of block billing or subscribing to your doctor's practice was a pretty new idea. So we took some heat in the media for this as well for, for doing it back then. But it enabled the doctors, like family physicians, to earn a little bit more aside from what was capped from the ministries. And it gave patients the ability to get care that doctors weren't being paid for anymore by the province. So prescriptions over the phone or like prescription renewals or some phone advice and things like that. So once we said, hey, we're going to see if your patients are willing to subscribe to you as a business, that turned out to be spot on. And you found there was two core user groups that would subscribe. You'd see seniors who would always like, they would be like a hundred percent take up almost from a senior cohort. And then the Parents with uh, young children who would, you know, be worried about that last second appointment or the need for for something. Then the people in between, it was kind of like hit or miss on whether or not they would do it. But when we were then at Medical Telecom, we were seeing really good growth there. So in the conversations with HealthScreen to merge, HealthScreen was an electronic medical record company, similar to what you see with like Telus Practice Solutions and things like that. When it was housekeeping, when we were having conversations, we basically said, you know what, we can really upsell your existing customer base. So they had about 2000 doctors as customers at the time. So we said, we think we can actually grow your customer base, like your existing base into a much higher revenue stream, as opposed to what you're currently making per doctor. And that was where the conversation kind of evolved from there. So it seems that one of the core interest or source of health screens merger was that medical telecom could add and upsell their existing customer base. Yeah, it was a really fragmented business. So a lot of private equity folks were also paying attention to the electronic health record space because there probably was, you know, pure estimations. Let's call it that there were 60 or 70,000 family physicians across Canada at the time. And there was probably 30 or 40 different, maybe more electronic health record companies across the country. So it was ripe for picking it up. But from a population perspective, 
there was only so fast you can grow in that electronic health record space because there was a very finite number of buyers, especially in a Canadian only situation. So you might pick up one, you might lose one. And it was a, there was a way to get some growth, but never really exponential. So I think that was the promise, you know, can I get into fast moving waters? I would say, and, and see what happens with my company if we try something a little different. Very interesting. Now, as a first time CFO in this type of situation, a public company merging, what were the main challenges that you experienced looking back? So again, there was definitely a piece of the aid and way over your head and you needing a support system in general. We had to build up a finance function. So doing that reporting was extremely difficult because we had to, at the same time, clean up the medical telecom books, that early stage startup where, you know, the, the books had existed for a few years and things were messy. So you had to try to clean that up while also keeping current on your public accounting stuff with health screen and then doing the consolidation and then OSC requirements. Like there was the public company rigor is pretty hard from that point of view. And that's a, that was a major challenge. But then it was also, you know, the company was growing like 10x uh, year over year. So it was trying to maintain reporting and looking backwards while also trying to look forward and figure out what was actually happening and trying to stay ahead of the curve. It was always uh, one of the board members at the time used to say, you know, you guys are basically drinking water out of a fire hose. And that was essentially the way I kind of looked at it, where you just, you know, you hold on tight and you just try to take in what you could take in and, but you know, don't stop moving and it hurts and it's painful. But, uh, we hired some people. We got as much of the function as we could up to speed. The key then became more process to do reporting in real time because it was just, if you were behind, you could never catch up. So we set up a lot of checks and balances on a daily basis to reconcile, to make sure that when it came towards figuring things out on like a month end reporting piece, we weren't trailing 30 days behind, which at that time, 30 days felt like six months. So it was really key to, to set up daily ways to, to keep ourselves in check and on top of what was happening. Now, you mentioned you were growing 10x growth year over year. While you were trying to maintain, you were also scaling headcount. And I believe you scaled the headcount from 20 to 150 employees during this time. What were the core priorities in managing the growth in headcount? Yeah, everybody was contributing on the interviewing side of, of, of trying to help with the headcount determination and who needs what. But a lot of times growth and headcount when you're in when you're in hyperscale mode like that, the growth and headcount is sometimes because you just are trying to throw bodies at a problem that you want to automate later and you need to find the time. So sometimes the increase in headcount is a catch-22 and it's a little bit of a you know, we'll throw bodies now and we'll get to it later, but then you don't necessarily get to it later and you just increase burn and it's hard to get out of the trap a little bit. So I'm always cautious when I see hyper growth in headcount, but that for us was really necessary because there were foundational items in our revenue model that needed to be made more efficient and automated that we just didn't get to. So we, we threw more bodies at it to make it work. But that being said, a lot of the growth also came from developers and, and needing to hire more because in our journey, we had also acquired 
two or three other companies. So now we are maintaining two or three different EMR companies. So we bought, you know, another, another one besides the health screen. So we had to support that technology plus build out our own technology. Then we also had to uh, build up a sales team. And then we doubled down to the sales team when things were really starting to get moving because we saw the opportunity. So some was strategic and some was definitely more not wanting to miss the opportunity. We threw bodies at it. Very interesting. It sounds like in the practical implementation of growth, there will always be aspects that you need to catch up on. And practically speaking, sometimes you do need to throw bodies just to keep the engine going and then check and balance as you go. Yeah, well, I think you have to think a little bit about the, you know, one of the mistakes when you reflect back and you think about it and we were kind of pushing for it, but we didn't, you know, didn't push hard enough for it. It's always a race on growth. But at the same time, who are you racing against? Like there was nobody that was competing with us in this in this space. We could have afforded to hold back, you know, growth for a quarter or, or even two quarters and have no real repercussions, right? Like the growth would have still been there, even if it would have been a small amount of growth. But we could have then focused internally on actually foundationally fixing parts of the business that needed to be fixed. But when you're rushing through the scale at that pace, you're going to miss things. And I think that's the grand scheme of things, the big mistake. And a lot of the advice that I pitch on to people today is the, you know, be opportunistic and grow. But it's rare that you see a race condition in, in startup that says you have to be the only winner. Like, you know, they're sure you get like your outliers, like the Facebooks of the world. And that's like, you know, the Instagrams of the world where there's a winner, but especially when you're talking about like enterprise type solutions or, you know, anything that's even SMB related or even like consumer based people spend on more than one thing, or people can choose to, you know, people can compete in the same space. And then it's a matter of out executing somebody and focusing on the offering that you're providing. But this idea that one winner or winner takes all, it is dangerous with a lot of early stage mm. companies, but a lot of people have this, you know, whether it's been in an, uh, something that they read and now have like ingrained in them in a different way. I'm not, I'm not quite sure why, but it's not a winner take all environment and people seem to operate and make decisions as if it is. Very interesting. This actually directly reflects the belief that listening to people who have done it and being there is the best way to take advice and make decisions. Because oftentimes the points that they will mention are not completely aligned with what most people are saying based on things that they've read or theories that they have, but haven't actually done it. Now, speaking in terms of the revenue growth, going from below 2 million to a 20 million run rate, what do you feel were the core priorities in terms of essentially sales processes, gatekeeper relationships, training, or market timing that really had, I would say, maybe the core impacts in the growth looking back? So part of it was definitely right place, right time. You know, when you think of med tech or digital health and this idea of patient records, and people being proactive with their health, we were probably one of the first people really chasing the space. Like the amount of personalized data that we had at our discretion, you know, we were really cautious about it. And, you know, 
we were working with government and privacy relations and all sorts of stuff to make sure that that was maintained the right way. But, you know, a bit of the right place, right time. And then there was a few folks on the team who were really driving on the revenue side who understood the customer, right? And we kind of had two customers because we were selling to the family physicians, but inherently we were selling to patients, right? Out of those family physicians. And as a result of that flow through, like we were never really selling direct to the families. Uh, we piloted something afterwards, which had a little bit of traction that way. But even then we couldn't go direct to the families without the support of the family physicians. So we were always an agent of that doctor if we were doing it that way. But with the family physician themselves, we understood their pain point of ultimately they just want to, you know, doctors just want to be doctors, right? They don't want to be like business people, like majority of them, right? They want to just like provide care for their patients, do well, and make sure people are taken care of. So even when, you know, you start telling them at that time, hey, you know, you can stop providing this service because you're not being paid for it. It's like, you know, they don't feel right. Like it's, it's like the moral dilemma. It's like, do I really stop providing this care that obviously people want because I'm not getting paid for it? It's like, I'll make time for it still. So it's like, well, then let's get you paid to at least do it. So that way you can then deal with it. So we, we were there at the right time from that point of view. And we really, every decision we made about the revenue was about understanding the doctor and saying, okay, how can we help them you know, it wasn't always top line focus. Like that was kind of, some of it was a bit of a, because it will generate revenue is great, but sometimes it was things that were just about care for the patient or, you know, you hear it a lot more today, like the idea of like patient engagement and patient experience. I remember we used to handle um, the communications that went out to the patients as an example. So the letter that would notify them that the doctor was going to start charging a subscription model. And if they didn't want to do it, that was okay. They could pay as they go in case they wanted these type of services. And one holiday season, we said, Hey doctors, you know what? We think that you may want to send out some letters to your patients just to say happy holidays. Right. If you want to see us, here's what, you know, here's the schedule, but like just generally happy holidays. We'll see you in the new year and the goodwill that got built up from that. So, you know, the doctors paid us for the letters to do the service for them and things like that. And it was a like raving review back from patients to the doctors and doctors, just talking about the, the community that it kind of created and the goodwill as a result. And while there wasn't direct revenue for the purpose of that letter, the doctors were on board with doing it because it was a way to stay connected to the patients. And it, again, it just created stickiness throughout. And I think that's the, you know, you have to think about ultimately like the value drivers of, of that customer and how you can understand them as much as possible. So combining that plus right place, right time is really what drove the, the scale. From Health Screen Solutions, you then went to PwC and were part of the Canadian Emerging Technology Services. And at that point, with the experiences under your belt, you were consulting ventures ranging from pre-money to 30 million ARR. Through this time of engagements with ventures and with founders, what have you observed as the core differences in thought processes, abilities, and skill sets of a founder, let's say, at 20 million ARR versus 500,000 ARR? I think... 
you're just, uh, you know, it's like a Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? So the 500k ARR company or founder is still looking, you know, have I actually hit product market fit or not? Is this like, should I be, how far am I going on this? And, you know, if you're at half a million ARR, you probably have figured out something. But then it's a, you know, is this a scalable venture or not? So I think there's still a lot of that early questions of, is this the right thing to do, even though I have some revenue? And everything is about the customer, obtaining customers and just, you know, validating that you're on the right path. Whereas I feel like, you know, when you get further down the food chain and you're in that $20 million ARR range, or even, you know, even a bit earlier, but let's say 20, process is a lot of the discussion, the right type of customer, right? Like you have to be diligent in what you're willing to, to say yes and no to. So does it fit core to the technology that you've built? Is it, does it, is it fundamentally the opportunity and the type of customer, like, you know, you're always, and you see it all the time with technology, like you get these random things that come out, you know, off to the side and you're like, Hey, do you want to do this? And it could be a few million bucks. It could be an interesting opportunity, but it could also be a massive drain on your people building something completely like new that doesn't really exist in the platform today. And like, sometimes you just have to say no and it's okay. But the idea of process, operational efficiency, and scale. Like, I think that's where you start seeing a little bit more of the difference of how do I make my decisions? Do I really understand how my business works? What the levers are that drive growth? Uh, it's a little bit easier at that stage to start figuring that part out versus at the half a million dollar error range when you're really just looking for validation. It seems that at the earlier stages, you're figuring what is true to you and what is a fit with the market and if this can grow and then becoming more and more disciplined in knowing this is our core values, this is our customer, and this is the connection between us. And then as the venture grows to, let's say, a 20 million ARR or even earlier, the focus now becomes on having the discipline to stick with the core values that have been identified the core customers that have been identified and what the core relationship between the two are. Would you say that is along the right lines? Yeah. Like I think it has to fit into this scale trajectory for the company later on. So, you know, nothing says you can't make an investment and say, Hey, this is an interesting opportunity. And maybe we're going to take the company over this way. And, you know, maybe it's a new product that's going to, but it can't be a one-off. So before you agree to something off the side, do the homework and say, you know, we've analyzed it. Here's a market opportunity. We validated with it. You're kind of almost like the startup within another startup where you start thinking about like a new product. Does this fit? You know, am I going to really allocate dollars towards building this out? Because now I need to think about who on the team is going to be focused on this because I've got to take it away from the main priority. And if it's not lucrative enough or worthwhile, and it's a short-term thing, then you, know, you probably have to say no. Unless again, you know, if you're in dire straits and you need cash, but like at a $20 million AR, you hope that's not the case. So I think that's really it. But you know, like you said, I think earlier on, how much do you know about your customers and is what you've built getting the kind of traction? And you have to still take the hard looks at the business. Like is sales cycle long or short? What kind of friction are you seeing in in your in the half a million dollar ARR? What's the kind of business that you want to be building? Because there's still 
you know, slow growth versus, you know, fast growth? And is it venture fundable versus, you know, should this be bootstrap and be a good growth business that's going to take a little bit longer, but might not be as sexy as some of the other stuff. There's a lot of ways to kind of skin the cat and decide. But uh, I think first and foremost, it basically is what I'm building valuable and do people like find utility in it. Excellent. Now from that point in time with PwC, you then went to ThoughtWire. At this point, you had many experiences under your belt. Looking back, what were your core thought processes, abilities, or skill sets that proved most valuable in maneuvering the health tech space with ThoughtWire? Um, I think, you know, when I went into ThoughtWire, I was craving the operational experience again after it had been probably about seven years since I had been the CFO at HealthScreen at that time. And I went in that time, eyes wide open, I would say, right? So I knew what I was getting myself into, but even in that scenario, you still get surprised every single day because that's just the nature of scaling tech, right? Like you're going to come in and you're going to think, okay, I've got this. I know, you know, I've seen the movie before and I, and I know how it's going to play out, but it doesn't actually also work that way. Things that you expect to happen still don't happen. Things you thought you knew you're challenged on every day. So you just try to stay as, as ahead of it as you possibly can. ThoughtWire was interesting because it was ahead of its time from a, a technology point of view. And also there was probably risk at the beginning that it was a solution looking for a problem, but I don't think that was the case. It was, the problem was there. The problem was that the problem wasn't fully understood. So when you say, Hey, we can actually, you know, make, uh, the, the big use case that ThoughtWire got a lot of traction for was an ability to take code blues and the heart rate failures from an ICU unit down to zero. So massively impactful and valuable but also felt like how can that be possible that you can make you know a zero heart attack event happen in an icu sounds too good to be true what are you guys selling me like you know is this selling ice to an eskimo like is this really really true it's like no no like it's legit like you can actually like here's what's involved on doing it and because the solution was a little bit ahead you get into a you know category creation you get into a bit of a education play into part of that sales cycle and that ended up being the bigger surprise or the bigger challenge that we had to deal with people misunderstanding what was the solution and where it kind of fit versus you know fast forward to today you google digital twin and hundreds of thousands of things show up but when i joined thoughtwire back in 2015 it was not that case so that to me, you know, a lot has changed in the five, six years since, but that was uh, the harder piece on it where there was definitely traction, but you had to educate the customers or the buying community. Interesting. And would you say that this education portion was actually layered into the sales cycle in terms of timeline, which then resulted in the projections of revenues? That's right. So I think, you know, education was getting layered into that actual sales cycle, which then created almost like some lag in that sales cycle as a result. So for ThoughtWire, the key then became channel partners and content to allow people to learn on their own time what it was. So 
content became king and making sure that use cases were published or that, you know, they spend, uh, you know, a lot of time with people like Gartner and Forrester and, and those folks who can help to ensure that people are talking enough about this technology and the utility of it so that, you know, it eventually can reduce the sales cycle versus what it was originally. There's many red tape and gatekeepers within this industry. What aspects or members or skill sets of the team enabled you guys to be at the door and have the relationships with the gatekeepers to enable these sales? So for ThoughtWire, and you know, one of the big things that drew me to it was one of the co-founders and CEO, Mike Monteith, was longtime entrepreneur and had spent a lot of time in the health system. When I reflect on him versus what I saw with medical telecom and health screen, he knew the system well. He understood how to kind of make it morph into, well, and how to get things done. But it still took a lot of time, especially in the Canadian landscape when you're talking about public sector and RFPs and needing to just find the time and finding the champions internally to go through the hoops and to take the process of selling step by step was really important. And then at the same time, understanding how to play the government relations game and seeing if you could help to alleviate some of the pressure built up on on sales by getting government support. That to me was critical in the success of ThoughtWire and still is today. They know channel, they know the industry well, and it's because they've come from there. So I think it's extremely difficult with a lot of, you know, it's why you see a lot of failures in healthcare tech and and that. If you're not from the system, the system doesn't welcome you with open arms. You need to understand the pain, right? Like going out and calling out uh, the healthcare system for being behind or or inefficient or that, you know, doctors should do more. It's not going to buy you goodwill when you're out there trying to sell to them later. Like, you know, they have challenges. It's not easy what, what's actually happening in a, in a healthcare setting from that point of view. So be empathetic to what the health system has to do. Like healthcare is highly complex, right? It's not like an SMB solution that, you know, it's going to miss or it's going to hit. And, you know, your software can have like, you know, that, that MVP model, like in healthcare, if your software doesn't work, people could die. You cannot mess around, right? It's a, the bar is higher. So you have to be eyes wide open on, on what you're playing with in the space. And the reward is great because it's also, if you sell, you're sticky and it's also highly, highly impactful. So it's a, it's also a different type of person that you end up recruiting into the company. When I thought about that idea versus, again, some of the growth that we saw in Headcount at ThoughtWire versus what I used to see at, at HealthScreen, at ThoughtWire, you're changing lives. There was one use case that we had built up for one of the hospitals that helped patients get from like, it was almost like that patient transport of taking a patient from like a, from their bed to a dialysis chair, as an example, and how that, that process gets managed. Or, you know, somebody in an ER who then has to get to another area. And there's a lot of lag in that flow because historically people are using like whiteboards and they're trying to just page people and, and call people some nurses and orderlies and everybody's trying to coordinate and it's complex. And when ThoughtWire kind of you know did it and started shaving a third to 50% of the time off the clock, you know, that's life or death for some people, right? Or it's like the difference of somebody having a stroke or not. You could really like connect and make it personal. So whether you were a dev 
or you were in finance, or you're in customer success, everybody understood the value of the outcome. So I wrote, you know, the value in that, it was more than money and it was more than just like the startup appeal. The tech mattered. And I think you could always show up at work in that saying, like, I'm going to make a difference in somebody's life. Might not be right this second, it might not be today, but what I'm working on is really important. And the people that we recruited were, were all believers in that and it was never about cash. 100%. It sounds like that definitely played into culture as well. Now, speaking back to health screen, timing was extremely important in the growth. Speaking to ThoughtWire, timing also actually played into the need for education in the sales process. I'm curious to know, given the timing of this moment in time with the current economic crisis, could you explain how you feel founders can best think through maneuvering the current landscape? I think it's a hard call, but it's extending your runway and being less dependent on, you know, you have to find a way to be less dependent on cash. So if you're in a burn, you know, shorting up the burn, you might be sacrificing some top line growth right now and that's okay. The current economic environment and balancing that with the pandemic it's giving companies an opportunity to take a real hard look at the business. You know, how fast can I get to a neutral bottom line or a cash flow neutral position? How do I at least limit the burn? You know, we'll see what happens when now the economy opens up a little bit more, but at the same time, do the hard work now and the thinking now of like extending runway if you can. You know, do you really need that role or that person? What's the real value? Are your devs working on the right thing? So yes, you know you want to focus on potentially scale and, oper- and operability on the platform. But if that's not going to generate dollars today, maybe you need to focus more on features. Everything should be about generating revenue and extending runway. So that's core to where I think companies need to get to. So not that different from the financial crisis of 2008. You need to weather the storm. So weathering the storm, unless you're one of the technologies that are actually seeing growth right now, and there are some, the flip side is, you know, cash isn't going to be as available. Venture capital will be a little slower to obtain if you do want VC money. So you need to kind of be ready to do it on your own. And that means weathering the storm and using your cash and either cut costs or, you know, generate some revenue and live off of that. But even if you're living off the revenue, it takes you still back to cutting costs in order to stretch that dollar out a little further. It seems that there are no easy answers in how to deal with the current situation. It's more of a situation that forces you to streamline your thought processes and where your focus goes and increases your experience and ability to grow a company even in regular or normal times. Yeah. And I think it is a, you know, take the time to, to look at the metrics of the business and to understand it. Of course, nobody wants to let go of people in, at this time. It's a hard thing to do with, with people. So I think, you know, with the wage subsidies and things like that, like hopefully you're able to keep people on for, for a bit longer. But at the same time, doesn't mean you shouldn't still be analyzing the business and saying, what should I do better? You have a period of time where you can reflect and fix it. It's a good chance to fix it because people will excuse the fact, you know, when you think of venture growth and like whether or not you're 2Xing on your revenue on an annualized basis, nobody's going to be expecting that for 2020. 
But what people are going to be evaluating are what does the unit economics look like on this business? And is there some growth? And then what the unit economics look like? And if those things look good, it'll still warrant venture dollars. But, you know, really rare to see the companies are going to be getting like that 2x growth model in 2020. So hard time to look at the business, but necessary. Very interesting. So Eugene, that actually brings our interview to a close. I'm super glad to have had you on the show here today. I'm sure that our audience members had many points where it triggered insights in their own minds as to how to go about their venture during these times. Thank you for being on the show. Awesome. Well, appreciate you having me. Thanks again. Thank you. Talk soon. See you. Thanks for joining us on the Beehive Capital Podcast. We hope this sparked new ideas, aha moments, or raised your spirits during these trying times. All the best, Douglas Obusu and the Beehive Capital team.